2: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about writing dates, and then about a fascinating study about how COVID has changed the way we think about certain words. Can you believe it's already 2023? I feel like I hadn't even gotten used to calling it 2022 yet, but another year is gone. And since a new year gets people thinking about the date, I'll answer a few date-related questions. Here's a question from a long time ago from a listener named Michael to get us started. It'll seem like he's getting a little off track, but it'll all make sense in a minute.
3: Grammar Girl, I have some concerns regarding the correct grammar for wedding invitations and wedding announcements. My fiance and I have two main questions. The first regarding a year, a year such as 2007, often written as 2007. We both believe this to be grammatically incorrect, yet prevalent among examples that we've seen in print. Our second question is regarding the use of British English in the States. We live stateside, and yet we see in these examples many words written in the British spelling versus an American spelling, and we don't know what to do. Thank you for your help.
2: The reason Michael's question about British English in wedding invitations is relevant to how to pronounce dates is that as a general rule, the year is pronounced 2023 in Britain and 2023 in America. That's the general rule. It's quite common to hear people use the and in the United States, although from the number of email messages I get complaining about it, I'd say a lot of Americans have been taught that it's wrong. So back to Michael's question, I believe the reason you see the year written as 2023 in wedding invitations is the same reason you see the other British spellings on invitations. Americans tend to think British English sounds more formal, and they want their invitations to sound special. Some people may consider it an affectation, but it's hard to fault people for doing something unusual when they're already walking around carrying flowers and dressing up in a suit or gown that's nothing like they'd wear in real life. There isn't much about weddings that's normal. But back to dates. There are two kinds of numbers you can use to talk about a specific day an ordinal number, and a cardinal number. Cardinal numbers represent amounts like 1, 2, and 3. Ordinal numbers represent a place in a series like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. I think of cardinal numbers as the numbers you see on playing cards. When you're writing out a date like January 1, 2023 in the American style, the day is written as a cardinal number. So you should never write January 1st, 2023. The weird thing, though, is that when you're speaking, even though it's written as January 1, you say January 1st. So when you're reading a date that's written January 1, 2023, you say January 1st, 2023. And that's probably why a lot of people get confused about how to write it. The instance in which it is okay to use an ordinal number is when you're writing the 1st of January because you're placing the day in a series. Of all the days in January, this day is the 1st. For example, your invitations could say, please join us for a party on the 1st of January. In that case, it's correct to use the ordinal number first. Next, there are some rules about commas and dates. When you're writing out a full date in the American style, you put a comma between the day and the year, so New Year's Day was january one, comma, twenty twenty three. Now different style guides make different recommendations about whether to put a comma after the year. Some say to put a comma after the year in a sentence like january first, twenty twenty three was an exciting day, and some say to leave the comma out after the year, so do check your style guide. And what about starting a sentence with a number? Although the general rule is that you shouldn't start a sentence with an Arabic number, that you should write out the words instead, some, but not all, sources make exceptions for years. Therefore, some people may object, but you wouldn't be completely out of line to write a sentence like, 2023 will be the year I keep my resolutions, with 2023 written as a number instead of written out with words. Still, if you want to be super safe, it's better to rewrite the sentence so the year isn't at the beginning. Finally, if you want to abbreviate the year, you can use an apostrophe to replace the initial two and zero. For example, writing, what are your plans for 23? With an apostrophe before the 23. If you want to refer to a whole decade, for example, if you want to reminisce about the 80s, you write 80s with an apostrophe replacing the one nine and with an S at the end. I loved the 80s. And you don't need an apostrophe before the final S. It's apostrophe 80 S. Across
0: America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give Better Help a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grammar Girl today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Grammar Girl. I know most people learn a new language because they want to travel, and I'm sure a lot of you do too, but I also bet a lot of you are like me and just think languages are cool in general. I love learning Spanish just to learn more about a new language and more about my own language and the words that are related. But no matter why you want to learn a new language, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. With Rosetta Stone, you can choose from 25 different languages. Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is convenient and can be used on desktop or as an app with the ability to download lessons offline. So don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash grammar. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off today at rosettastone.com slash grammar. To figure out how we understand language, we need to understand how people learn words and organize them in their minds so we can understand how they identify relationships among the words and how they quickly come up with the right words when they want to say something. Now, This may sound simple since we do it every day, but in reality, it's part of a pretty complex language processing system that researchers would like to understand better. For example, think about the last time you had one of those tip-of-the-tongue experiences where you knew you knew a word but just couldn't come up with it. Why are we able to quickly come up with some words but not others? How are they triggered and connected in our brains? These are central questions in understanding human language. And with the pandemic came not just coronavirus, but also a massive change in what we talked about. Words that normally we'd rarely hear—words like mask, social distancing, isolation, vaccine, and quarantine—became commonplace almost overnight, and even more unusual, this happened all over the world. To researchers, this offered a unique opportunity to see if such a drastic and widespread shift might have some long-lasting effects on how we process language. So a group of language scientists from both industry and academic backgrounds designed a study to see how the uptick in the use of less common words like mask and screening during the pandemic changed how we mentally organized and processed words. Their finding that COVID has indeed changed the way we understand and see relationships between words. Previous research has found two important things that help us store and easily access the meaning of a word. First, how frequent that word is in our environment, and second, whether it has any other words or sounds that are linked with it in our minds. For example, words like squeaky toy might cause us to pull up the word dog because we've learned to associate their meanings in what linguists call a semantic network or neighborhood. So hearing one word improves how quickly we can come up with another related word in a process called semantic priming. And even recognizable sounds and not just words can be part of these semantic networks and have this effect. For example, coughing, a fairly innocuous sound before the pandemic, has now taken on connotations of COVID spread. So it's possible that because of this association, hearing a cough leads us to more quickly access words like mask, screening, and quarantine, since that link has recently become part of our shared experience. Testing the effect of this sudden change to our language over the past few years, the researchers wanted to find out if the sudden and dramatic increase in pandemic-related words, words that hadn't been very frequent before the pandemic, had changed how these words were stored and activated in our minds, and whether there had been changes in our semantic networks. To look at this, they used what's called a phoneme restoration task, where a sound in a word is replaced with a noise that obscures part of the word's pronunciation, like abracadabra with the K you'd normally hear in abracadabra obscured by a noise. What we find is that often people can fill in the missing sound without even realizing it to match a word they know, relying on the knowledge that they have about existing words in their language. Taking advantage of this ability the researchers played a series of words all of which had a sound or two obscured by a noise so participants would hear something like noise ask or noise knockdown and then were asked to type the word they thought they'd just heard here's an example with the word obscured by fuzz
1: knockdown knockdown
2: and here's an example with the word obscured by a cough
1: <coughs> knockdown knockdown
2: Now, you might notice that in these cases, with the first sound being impossible to make out, participants would have to choose among a number of what are referred to as competitors in terms of which word they thought they heard. For example, between mask and task for ask, or lockdown or knockdown for okdown, or rung versus lung for ung. Looking at these competing words in terms of their pre-pandemic use, the study discovered they occurred at about the same rate in our speech. But post-pandemic, the rate of words like mask, lockdown, and lung, as well as a number of others like injection, isolation, and clinic, had dramatically increased. And what the study found was that people's increased experience during the pandemic with words like mask or lockdown biased them to hear those words instead of competitors like task or knockdown. Even more interesting, when a cough obscured the first sound instead of just random noise, it increased the rate at which COVID-related words were perceived even more. So it seems we've learned to link the sound of a cough with COVID, which then triggers access to other words—things like injection, isolation, or mask—that we also see as COVID-related. As a result of this research, we see how it is that we learn connections between words based on not just shared meaning, like for synonyms such as car and auto, but also shared experience. And that shift in how we understand words and the connections between them can happen suddenly, triggered by a major event like the pandemic or a war. This also means that the things we talk about with sudden increased frequency weigh more in how we organize words in our minds than the things we used to talk about. In other words, our recent experience seems to matter more than whatever previous experience with other words or associations we might have had. That segment was based on a study by Daniel Kleinman, Adam Morgan, Rachel Ostrand, and Ava Wittenberg at the NYU School of Medicine and was written by Valerie Fridland a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of a forthcoming book, like Literally Dude, on all the speech habits we love to hate. You can find her at ValerieFridland.com. Finally, I have a familect story from Tammy.
3: Hi, Grammar Girl. My name's Tammy. I'm calling from the tiny but beautiful country of Israel. I'm a long-time listener and particularly love the episodes where you discuss word origins and the history behind them. So thank you so much for that. Um calling in with a family word that we have which is to prefeed, P R E S E E D. Um when we go out to a restaurant to celebrate something with a family, um we have six children and half of them are hungry teenage boys. So before we head out, we pre-feed them. They have a little snack, because otherwise they will leave the restaurant hungry. Um, We conjugate it, I guess, (laughs) by calling out to each other, hey, did somebody pre-feed so-and-so? Or don't worry, so-and-so is pre-fed, we can head out now. And uh, it's a word that probably only has meaning to us, um, but thought you might get a kick out of it. Uh, Have a wonderful day, and thank you for your great work.
2: Thank you, Tammy. I love that. And pre-feeding seems like a very practical thing to do with hungry teenagers. It also reminded me of when I was in college. We called our parties functions, and when we'd get together before the parties, we would call them pre-functions. And we also used it as a verb. For example, I remember talking about pre-functioning. Thanks again for the call. If you want to share the story of your Family Act, a family dialect or word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 83 321 4Girl, and I might play it on the show. Be sure to tell me the story behind your word or phrase and call from a quiet place. Grammar Girl is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast, thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our ad operations specialist is Morgan Christensen, our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin, and our digital operations specialist is Holly Hutchings, who recently joined a pickleball group and is nervous about exposing her beginner skills, but excited to get better. And our intern is Cameron Lacey. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all.
0: See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out.